Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Henderson MB Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information on our church, visit hendersonmbchurch.com. So, uh, yeah, I'm Daniel Queering. Uh, When I was in seventh grade, uh, my family started going here, and I graduated from Heartland Community Schools in 2013. I graduated from college in 2017, and I'm about to enter my third year teaching uh, high school science in Chapman, Kansas. Does get better after the first year. I didn't believe it at the time, Uh, but uh, but it did. Uh, So... What I want to talk about today is uh, something that I hope will help the church deal with a changing culture and a changing kind of traditional system that underlies the society we live in. And in order to talk about this, I want you to begin by imagining that you woke up one morning and you found yourself in a strange house that you never had been in before, right? So you get up, you have no idea how you got into this house, you start wandering around from room to room, And there's going to be a number of questions that enter your mind. So first of all, you could say, like, whose house is this? Um, Why am I here? How did I get here? All these sorts of things. But a question that will not come into your mind is, what room am I in right now? Right? As you wander from the living room to the dining room and things like that, you're going to be able to tell what the rooms are used for. Right? There's not going to be a neon sign above the kitchen that says, the kitchen, and you'll be like, oh, I'm in the kitchen. Right? That's not going to happen. Instead, you're going to be able to tell what room you are in based upon the arrangement of the furniture and things about the room. Rooms have a telos to them. And if you've never heard that word before, telos is a Greek word that's used in the Bible all the time, and it means purpose. It means functions. Literally, it means ends. Right? So to ask what is the telos of something is to ask what is the purpose of this thing? What was it made for? What's its function? And rooms have a purpose, and you can tell this just by walking in the room. You might look at things like the size of the room, um, what type of furniture is in the room, how that furniture is oriented, and things like that. So for example, if you're walking around the house, and you come into a room where there's a bunch of comfortable chairs and maybe a coffee table and a TV in the corner, you can kind of apprehend that this is the living room. This is a family room or something like that. Or if you come into a room that's filled with desks and there's a chalkboard up front and all of the desks are facing towards the chalkboard, you can kind of tell that this is a classroom, that the function of this room is to teach people things. So... What I'm saying here is that rooms have what I call a center. Now, I don't mean like the geometric center. I don't mean the center of the room. I mean like the center of attention, right? Rooms are focused towards something. So in the case of the classroom, there's, you know, a chalkboard and everything. There's the desks, and all the desks are facing the chalkboard. So that tells you something about what goes on in the room. It tells you that the focus of the room, or the most important thing that happens in the room, is the learning that takes place, right? Uh, Think about Memorial Stadium for a second, right? Memorial Stadium, if it's a big room, we can tell what's at the center, or what's the most important thing about that room. Well, it's the football field. It's the football game that takes place on the field, because everything is oriented and facing towards that room, 
So rooms have a purpose. They have an end. They have a telos. But the question I want to ask today is a wider question. The question essentially is this. If the whole universe were a room, if, all of, if the whole world, if everything that exists were a room, what type of room would it be? Which way would its furniture be pointing? In other words, I'm asking a question about the purpose of the universe. What's the function of the universe? What is the universe pointing towards? And I want to answer this question from a Christian perspective, because answering this question will not only help reinforce what we believe, but it'll help us uh, bring the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ to a culture and to a mindset that is changing day by day. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm, when I ask what's the purpose of the universe or what's the purpose of the room, I'm not talking about our subjective sense of purpose. So, for example, uh, many of you probably feel like your life has purpose, but the real question is, does my life, per my life have purpose simply because I feel as though it does, right? Well, if that's the case, then what about people who feel that their life is meaningless? Are they correct? Imagine that you had a friend who said, you know, my life just doesn't feel significant. Are you going to tell them, well, since you feel that way, you're right, your life isn't significant? Or would you rather tell them that in spite of how you are feeling, your life has value, and that value is dictated by something external to you or something outside of you? Of course, we want to say the second thing. So here we're asking a question of the purpose to the universe, or the external or the ultimate purpose to the universe. What is that? Where does it lie? Where do we find it? Now, um, in order to answer this question, we're going to have to dive into a little bit of theology here. So I want to start with a story. Uh, imagine that there's an old man, like a grandfather, and a grandson, and the grandson asks the grandfather, Grandpa, what is holding up the world? What's holding the world up, right? And the grandfather says, well, the whole globe is balanced perfectly on the back of a turtle. And of course, um, the, the grandson is, doesn't really like this explanation, so he says, well, Grandpa, what's holding the turtle up? And the grandpa replies, the turtle is just being held up by another turtle. It's just turtles all the way down, right? And you guys are laughing because you know this is a ridiculous answer. And it's a ridiculous answer, and it's not a satisfying answer for at least two reasons. First of all, the original question, if you really think about it, the original question is not answered, right? Because we're saying, what holds the world up? Oh, a turtle. But that turtle has to be held up by another turtle, and that turtle has to be held up by another, on and on, forever and ever. We really never actually answer the question of what is holding the world up. So what we recognize here is that the chain of turtles, or the tower of turtles, can't go on forever. We have to have something that stops the turtles, eventually, if we're going to explain what holds the world up. Now, what is it that could stop the chain of turtles? Well, it's something like the ground, right? The ground is something that does not need holding up. Instead, the ground is the thing that holds everything else up. The ground can hold up uh, the chain of turtles, it's holding up me right now, it's holding up you, it's holding up this entire building. Nothing needs to hold up the ground, that's where the chain of turtles stops. And if you uh, think closely about the world, we're really in a situation the same as the Tower of Turtles, 
right? We live in a world of cause and effect. So, for example, the reason, or the reason why a, uh, a boulder is rolling down a hill is because I pushed it down the hill, right? Cause and effect. But the question is, can that chain of cause and effect go on forever and ever and ever and ever in the past? And the answer, just like in the case of the chain of turtles, is that it cannot go on forever and ever. Instead, we need to have a first explanation, or we need to have a first cause. In other words, we're asking, what is the ground of the universe that we live in? And so if you are a Christian, the answer to this question is God. I'm going to give a couple of illustrations on what I mean by this. Um, Imagine that everything that exists is a tree right? Everything that exists in the world. So things like the laws of nature, um, you and I, meaning good and evil, all things that exist are at the tips of the branches of this tree. And the way this works is that if you take any branch on the tree and you trace it back in time, eventually, no matter what tip of the branch you start at, you're going to come back to the original seed. Every part of the tree comes from the original seed. And in this case, under the Christian and the biblical worldview, that seed from which everything else comes is God. Another way to think about it is if we have a skyscraper, right? And the different levels of the skyscraper are different things that exist, like the universe, human beings, politics, whatever you want exists um, as a level of that tower. Now the question is, what is holding the entire tower up? What's the foundation of the tower? And in the same sense, the foundation of the tower is God under the Christian scheme of things. Now, um, some of you guys might be thinking, okay, why why are we getting into this? And one thing I want to point out is how we think about God is one of the most important things about us, individually and as a church. Think about it this way. Why did Jonah run from God when he was told to go to Nineveh? Why did he think that he could hide from God? Why did he think that God was someone who couldn't see him if he just got on a ship and went somewhere, right? Well, he had a deficient view of God. He wasn't thinking of God in the right way. He thought of God in a way that wasn't as the king of the universe, and so he thought that he could just run away and get away with it, right? So how we think about God is very important. Uh, The theologian A.W. Tozer put it this way. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Now, first of all, um, if you are talking to someone who's a non-believer, they might say something like, well, You don't believe in Zeus. You don't believe in Thor. You don't believe in the thousands of other gods that are out there in the world and in human culture. Why should I believe in your God? Um, Isn't he just the same as everyone else? And the answer to this question is that the idea of God brought forth in Christianity is much, much, much different than the rest of the world's view of God. God is not just this man in the sky. He's not just a superhero that has powers who flies around and does stuff, right? Thor is that type of God, or Zeus is that type of God. They're just super people that just fly around and mess around, and sometimes they do good stuff, sometimes they do bad stuff, right? All of this 
is, they're just kind of superheroes, right? But God instead is not a being that exists. He is being itself. He's not just uh, something that exists. He is existence itself. And so he is a totally different type of God, and he explains a totally different type of stuff about the universe than Thor or Zeus explain. Now, I want to return to our discussion here of purpose and meaning and all of these sorts of things. And I want to start in Acts 17, 22 through 23. So just a little bit of context here. Um, Paul is on his missionary journey. He stops in the Greek city of Athens, and he's kind of looking around at everything, and he decides to make this proclamation to the people around him. So here, in Acts 17, it says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So, what I want to point out here is that if God is really the ground of everything that exists, if God created everything, if everything is dependent on him for existence, that means that our sense of right and wrong and purpose and meaning in the universe also ultimately come from God. I would say this is a universal human experience. Everybody wants to feel as if their life is significant and worth something and that they're striving towards some goal that is higher than themselves. And the question that should be before us is where does that feeling come from? Why do human beings have that sense of purpose to begin with? What is it pointing towards? Is it pointing towards something that is real or is it pointing towards something that simply exists in our minds? Now, here is the bottom line. In a way, we are all like the people of Athens, right? Here, Paul says, you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And here, the source of people's longings to be loved, the source of people's longings to um, be desired, to, to be appreciated, to live in a community, all of these things ultimately find their root in God. Though whether people know it or not, they are seeking after something that they are worshiping, even though they don't know what it is. And really, they're searching for an unknown God in their hearts. If we think about it for a second, sin, in a sense, at root, is the desire to find something that is really from God. Here's what I mean by that. Um, imagine someone who gossips, right? Most people don't gossip because they want to destroy relationships, right? That's not their ultimate goal for gossiping. People want to gossip so that their uh, lives feel significant, so that they feel important, so they get a certain thrill out, out of it. But notice that it is not bad in and of itself to feel significant. It's not bad in and of itself to feel like your life has purpose or that you are important. What is bad is the method by which you go about getting those things. Think about the Garden of Eden for a second. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden for eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, is it a bad thing in and of itself to know the difference between right and wrong? Well, no. That's what we try to teach our children. 
right? But what was sinful about what Adam and Eve did was not that they desired knowledge, but that they tried to get that knowledge their own way. Their method by which they did it was in contrast to the will of God. And that is what makes it sinful. So sin at root is searching for something good that is ultimately found in God. And of course, we know that people everywhere are by nature sinners. So the question is, if we all do bad things in search of something good, where is that good thing ultimately found? And that good thing is ultimately found in God. So people, even though they do all sorts of wrong things and bad things all the time, they are searching for something within themselves that can only be found in God. Uh, to put it more uh, illustratively, there's a God-shaped hole in all of our hearts. Uh, theologian and molecular biologist Alistair McGrath put it this way. So here he says, God is the name of the one we have been looking for all our lives without knowing it. So in that same way, we are ignorant of the very thing that we worship, or we're ignorant of the very thing that we look for. Our longings are a residue of our God-intended purpose. God created us in his image. He created us to be in relationship with him, and our longings for those sorts of things are ultimately found in him. Now, when we say that we long for purpose in our lives, to return to the, to the illustration of the room, I think what is really going on is we long for what's at the center of the room. We long for what the, what the room is pointing towards, in the same way that all of uh, your chairs right now are pointed towards the front of the room. If the universe were a room, we want to know what's at that central point. What is everything else pointing towards? And fortunately, the Bible is not silent on this issue. Uh, John 1, so this is the beginning of the Gospel of John, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God from the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Now, many of you probably know that that Greek word for the word is in the Greek logos. And it's where we get words like biology or theology or sociology or psychology, right? The, the word logos means reason. It means knowledge. It means the study of. It means all of these things. And so John, I think, is trying to make two very important points here about this logos, this center of the universe. First of all, everything was created by the Logos, through the Logos, and for the Logos. Here it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, so the Logos was with God, the Logos was God, and everything was created through that Logos. So that's the first point. The Logos is the center of the room that is our universe. Now, the second thing is that John identifies this center of attention as Jesus. So Jesus isn't just this person who existed in a historical time and place who, um, you know, who walked around and did some stuff. Instead, Jesus is not only a person who existed, but is actually God himself. 
is someone who is present at the beginning of creation and actually created the universe. Everything was created by Jesus and actually for Jesus. Now, uh, Christ himself claimed as much in his earthly life. There's lots of uh, quotes that go something like this. So, for example, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the early church seemed to take on a similar um, belief about Jesus. So, for example, in Acts 3.15, Peter is preaching to the Jews that are around him, and he says this, You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. And so notice that they, what they used to talk about Jesus is the author of life. Jesus is responsible for everything that exists. He created everything, and everything was created for him. Now, I think what this positions us to say is that Christianity has a very unique answer to a very old problem, right? If you were to go out and ask people who aren't Christians, or maybe just not religious, um, why they aren't religious, most of them would probably say, well, hey, wait a minute, there's all sorts of suffering and evil in the world, how do we reconcile that with a good God, right? And just think about that yourself. There's not a single person out there who exists who hasn't felt some sort of pain of loss, death in the family, poverty, any sickness, any of these sorts of things. There's a near infinite number of ways that your life could go wrong, right? Don't think about it too much, because the, the number of ways that your life could go wrong will start to overwhelm you in a second. And how is it that we address that important fact from a Christian perspective? Because everybody denies that, or sorry, everyone, everyone accepts that bad things happen. So how do we go from that to preaching Jesus in the lives of people? And the answer here is, what is the fuel by which people get through suffering? How do people— there's people who suffer immensely more than we do, and yet they, they love life. How, how do they do that? Really? What is the fuel by which they get through these sorts of things? Um, there was a uh, neurologist and uh, psychiatrist named Viktor Frankl. And Viktor Frankl was a Jew in Europe during the Holocaust, and he was captured by the Nazis, and he spent uh, a, a lot of time in several different concentration camps. He was in Dachau, he was in Auschwitz, he was in the worst of the worst places. And after he got out, he wrote a book called, uh, let's see, Man's Search for Meaning. And here, Viktor Frankl says this, There is nothing in the world, I venture to say, that would so effectively help one to survive even the worst conditions as the knowledge that there is meaning in one's life. There is much wisdom in the words of Nietzsche. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. So here, what Viktor Frankl is saying is that what got him through the camps and what got other people through the camps was this sense that what they were going through, even though it was bad and every, even though it seemed like there was no meaning to it all, they still felt as if there was some reason that they had to make it through. They had some underlying purpose or meaning that drove their desire to survive the camps. 
And so here, the question is, what worldview, what religion, what outlook on life gives people the best fuel, gives them the best meaning to get through the circumstances that they face? And here, I believe Christianity provides an unprecedented answer. Because what John 1 is saying, when he's saying the Word was with God, the Word was God, what he was saying is that at the center of it all, at the very base, at the very bottom of everything we see, is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is not just some other God among many, but he is someone who entered humanity, and he himself suffered on our behalf. So at the center of it all is suffering, but not only suffering, suffering that is taken and used to bring something better out of. Christ suffered in every way that we do, right? Before he was arrested, he was abandoned by his friends. Nobody was there for him. His own countrymen spit at him. Romans, his government, gambled for his clothes. He was tortured. He was killed. He experienced evil in every way that we do. And yet, he was able to bring something even greater out of it. That is the search for meaning that people are on their entire lives. Now, purpose is the thing which human beings use to confront suffering. And Christ lies at the center of that purpose that we all long for. We all have the intuition that we matter and that the world matters. And this isn't something that just exists in our heads, but instead it points to Christ who lies at the center of our room. I want to make some concluding remarks here, and I don't know if the worship team is coming up uh, after me, so you guys can start coming up any time now. But the situation that the church finds itself in is one in which traditional um, kind of areas of thinking are fading away, right? Our entire um, world is built on the Christian ideas of God and laws and things like that. And what people are seeking to do is to erode away that foundation in order to keep all of the good things that Christianity has provided, right? They, they are all for, um, you know, treating your neighbor as yourself, um, loving your enemies, uh, equality of, of everybody, right? No slave or free, any of that stuff, right? They're all for that, but they want to reject the foundation that it's built on. To me, that's like someone who lives on the 10th store of an apartment building thinking that they can get away with blowing up the first floor. It just doesn't work like that. You know, Viktor Frankl saw this coming in the midst of the concentration camps. Here, Viktor Frankl says, At the beginning of human history, man lost some of the basic animal instincts in which an animal's behavior is embedded and by which it is secured. Such security, like paradise, is closed to man forever. Man has to make choices. In addition to this, however, man has suffered another loss in his more recent development inasmuch as the traditions which betrust his behavior are now rapidly diminishing. And here it goes. No instinct tells him what he has to do, and no tradition tells him what he ought to do. Sometimes he doesn't even know what he wishes to do. So the culture and, and the way that people think around us is changing. 
But the mission of the church has not changed. And even though the mission of the church has not changed, the methods by which we go around telling people about Jesus may have to change. For example, when I started talking today, I didn't start with the Bible and then get to Jesus. I started with something that we all kind of recognize, that we feel as though our life has meaning. And then I asked a question, where does that meaning come from? Right? You start with experience and then end with Jesus. Now, I echo the sentiments of 1 Peter 3.15, and I'm paraphrasing here, but 1 Peter 3.15 says, be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you. And most of all, we need to keep the logos at the center of our vision, keep Christ at the center of what we look at. And with this comes the realization that behind every sin, behind every flaw, every frustration, every act of aggression, stands a human being whose sense of purpose is pointing them towards an unseen Christ. And we, as the church, can help point them in the direction that they've been seeking to go. If all this is true, then you have nothing to lose by following Jesus and everything to gain. At the beginning of this talk, I asked a couple of questions. And the question was, um, if our universe was a room, what sort of room would it be? And I believe the answer to that question is, if the universe were a room, it would be a room an awful lot like this room right here, like a church, with the cross standing tall at the center and everything else oriented towards it. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at hendersonmbchurch.com or email me directly at luke at hendersonmbchurch.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care and God bless.